0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada's vaccine effort is receiving a boost from the United States. They're finalizing the plan to send us 1.5 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine. How's this going to roll out? Well, we'll discuss that. McMaster University is getting $5 million to study the vaccine effectiveness in long-term care. Dr. Don Bowdish, who is a co-principal investigator in the study, will join us with the details. And the trial for one of the two Canadians detained in China took place behind closed doors. We get the latest update from Ottawa correspondent Abigail Beam. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Canada's vaccine effort is receiving a boost from the United States. The Biden administration has announced that it's going to be sending about 4 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine to both Mexico and to Canada. Global's Reggie Cicchini has the details. The deal would send 1.5 million doses of the vaccine into Canada and 2.5 million to Mexico. While the U.S. has approved three different vaccines, AstraZeneca is still in waiting. The company has millions of doses in a U.S. facility and is expected to have at least 30 million within the next few weeks. The deal to send vaccines to both countries comes as part of a more broad plan by the U.S. government to help with a global effort in procuring enough vaccine. A formal announcement is expected in the coming days. The ability to provide help proves how the U.S. has become a vaccine powerhouse. 12% of the country has been vaccinated compared to just 2% in Canada, which has more vaccines in play. The plan, according to those close to the negotiations, is not expected to hinder the president's goal of 100 million doses in 100 days. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. So what are the implications? Well, let's uh, bring in our guest to talk about this. Dr. Laurie Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today.
1: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: And one of the things that just jumped out at me there from Reggie's report here is is the percentage of Canadians that have been vaccinated. Uh, And I know it's always an unfair comparison to say, hey, this is what they're doing in the States, why can't we match that? Uh, But by percentages, we we just seem to be lagging behind so many other countries. What's going wrong as you assess the program and the rollout nationally?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably going to be a lot more informative for us to do a you know, kind of retrospective look at this when, in a year from now and see how this all went down. But I think a big part of it is um, the fact that we don't have manufacturing capacity at this point. So we're not in a situation where we're able to you know, create our own vaccines and then decide how we're going to roll them out. We are depending on, on vaccines being sent to us. And so I think that's why the piece from the U.S. government is, is so important that we'll be, we're able to get access to another million and a half vaccines very soon that we didn't know would be coming
0: now uh yeah your point's well taken the the vaccines that that they're going to be shipping out are produced in the united states this is not stuff that came over from europe uh and and that capability is something obviously that we've been talking about for some length now so it's accessibility i guess is is the number one problem here as far as the canadian rollout is concerned
1: yeah I mean, like we we've seen political leaders talk a little bit more about building some of that capacity here, and obviously that doesn't help us today, but it could down the road it will down the road in the event that we ever find ourselves in the situation again. and I, I've heard a few um, you know medical officials talking today about we still don't really know how long it's going to take for instance for the vaccine to really take effect. It's possible we could end up having this is a vaccine we might need more than once. and so I think it's it's good for us to have that that capacity in-house sort of thing. And we know that and we're working on that. But for right now, this is why we see this sort of international negotiations around who's got what vaccines and how we can move them around. And if a country like the U.S. has excess, are they able to send them our way? And so this is really, you know, at the level of international negotiation for Canada, as opposed to how can we hurry up and make our own vaccines?
0: Uh, it's interesting to note as well that the astrazeneca that they're going to be shipping to mexico and to canada uh is, is produced there it hasn't even been approved by the fda down there do you find that mm-hmm. odd i mean usually it's the fba fda that kind of throws the rubber stamp on stuff long before for instance health canada does uh, but they seem to be dragging their heels on this one
1: yeah i mean it is a kind of a different situation for us to be in where we've got it approved and they don't but i think it, that's a big part of of why the Biden administration is willing to send them here. I mean, like, not to put any kind of negative light on that, but, I mean, obviously the Biden government is, is ahead of, of their the target that they set for themselves in terms of their vaccine rollout, and so that alone puts them in a position where they can share what they have. But also, given the fact that the AstraZeneca vaccine is not actually helping them move toward their target at this point because it's not approved there, means that this is really, like, this is a great thing for them to do for us, but it's also a very doable thing for them to do for us. And then when it comes time that AstraZeneca is, is approved there, we are going to kick those vaccines back to them. So you, you could put this in a sort of win-win light.
0: Yeah, that, and that's an important point. We're not buying these vaccines. We're ba- basically borrowing them, and, and we'll pay them back, Got it. Uh, as, I guess, as we get some of the stuff that's coming in from Europe and India over the next little while. Uh, it, it's interesting to see just how this is going to roll out, though, and exactly how this is going to be. Now, uh, you know, when we talk about millions of doses, or a little more than a million doses in the situation with Canada here, how effective is and how impactful is that going to be with our program? Um,
1: I mean, it's, it's a million and a half, and I think... It, it does have a chance to make a big difference for us because now we're seeing, you know, more people going out, getting the vaccine. We're seeing, you know, in, depending on where, what province that you're in, you know, you, you can sort of meet that threshold at a, at a different age. And so I think now that we're seeing, too, that there's evidence to suggest that the first dose is perhaps more effective on its own than we originally thought, that has, you know, th- this million and a half at this particular point is massive for us i think and also because in ontario we're seeing a third wave and that's scary like we're looking at what you know how these variants are, are working they're affecting younger people they're in much more critical ways and so i think we you know there's an urgency of getting ahead of this in a in a really big way and so if we're able to use these vaccines to expedite the process so that we're we're not dealing with waves again right like this i think it's critical
0: well, I know we're kind of tying the two stars together, but I'm, I'm sharing the same concerns that you are about the vaccine rollout here in Ontario. And I'd like to think that a lot of those are going to head here because I, I, I'm hearing anecdotally from an awful lot of people saying, hey, what about me? I mean, you know, before this even started, we were told that, you know, if you have a pre-existing condition, you're a higher risk. Uh, we'll get you the vaccine. Well, those people, cancer patients, uh, people with autoimmune diseases are saying, you made a promise. How come, you know, we, we're still back here and you're not doing much about it? And, and there's so many other groups right now too that are very concerned about this too. So, uh, this may well be the rescue effort that maybe we need here in Ontario.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, I really take your points too about the strain on the healthcare system overall. Which is when you think back to a year ago, when all of these measures for, uh, you know, social lockdowns and and all of these things were just originally taking effect. That was how it was always explained to us: is that you know we have to make sure that we stay ahead of this thing and we flatten the curve because even if, you know, no, no matter what happens, the, the healthcare system can't absorb if every, you know, if this thing spreads in a massive way and, you know, you've got no, critical numbers of people who all need emergency care, we can't, we can't handle that. We have to stay ahead of it. And so a year later, you know, like it's, that's still what we're managing. We're, we're managing trying to stay ahead of, of the spread of this thing so that the healthcare system can absorb anyone who needs help. And also, you know, we're looking at, other, you know, non-COVID conditions that also are critical that need care, right? So, I mean, yeah, getting getting this vaccine, this is the year of the vaccine. That is the, the top priority.
0: Uh, and, and especially to those people that are in need right now. I mean, and I don't think anybody's arguing about, you know, the protocol, you know, the, the plus 80s and, and the frontline workers. Uh, there's no argument about that, but it just seems to uh, be kind of a haphazard way that they're doing it for the rest of it. And I'm hearing the same thing from people in other parts of the country as well. So, uh, But on the other hand, it's, I think you and I have talked about before, any time the federal government tries to get involved in anything to do with health care, uh, the premiers uh, get their backs up and just say, look, this is our game. So I don't know if it's ever going to get resolved anytime soon, but I guess the more product we have, the more chances of something like this happening uh what about the take-up here in in this in this country i'm told that the numbers are pretty high here for the number of people that are actually are waiting to roll up their sleeves and and want to be a part of this program as opposed to the united states where i think it's one in five people have said they have no interest in getting the vaccine at all
1: yeah and then the some statistics that i've seen out of europe too is is there is a, a you know probably in europe as opposed to canada the higher rate of of you know not sure kind of tentativeness around whether you're going to take the vaccine but yeah i mean like and i think when the when the vaccine is more readily available and more accessible across age groups i think we'll see governments at all you know federal provincial you know everybody is going to be involved in a public education campaign around you know make sure you go out and get your vaccine and, and we're already hearing from the prime minister the vaccine you can get is the right one Right. Like there's there's Mm -hmm. a lot of really positive reinforcement around getting the vaccine. And I think we'll see even more of that as we get into the spring and summer.
0: Well, because there was, let's face it, a stigma attached to AstraZeneca because of some of the stories we heard. Uh, although, I'm, you know, when you have 17 million people vaccinated and there's seven or eight uh, different examples, I, I don't know that that really raises red flags. But uh, now that the the authorities have come out and said that we can't find any tie here, uh, you know, the, the benefits still far outweigh that. Does that remove that stigma or is that what's causing some of the hesitancy, you think?
1: I mean, I think any time that somebody gets a mixed message, it runs the risk of undermining trust, right? Like, and that's reasonable in, to a certain extent because we we're looking for information. We are increasingly a data-driven society. I can understand the perspective of somebody who says, "Okay, what you know, what's going on here? What kind of information?" Like, yeah, you pay attention to what you hear, but at the same time, I think we're hearing, you know, even from Dr. Tam, loud and clear, there's no. This is not something we have to we have to worry about if you can get an AstraZeneca vaccine, do it. But it's, you know, it's as, as we've heard a lot, you know, this is an evolving situation when we're really trying to figure this out, like, and we're doing the best we have with the information we have at the time. And so we are going to hear stories of, you know, sometimes somebody, somebody had a, a reaction, they had a vaccine, was the vaccine the cause. But ultimately I think that's why it's so important for us to get You know, very clear information, not just from political leaders, but also from chief medical officers and health officials who have the ability to and have the expertise to give us that information straight.
0: The fact that uh, the United States is helping out Canada and Mexico is, is relieving to us, certainly. I, I know there's some some hue and cry from other countries to say, hey, what about us? Uh, what about this idea about, about the global approach to this? And, I mean, maybe not this month, but, I mean, at some point, uh, we keep hearing that, look, at if we don't look after everybody else and even those countries that can't afford the vaccine, uh, it's just going to mm-hmm. keep coming back at us.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think we see that like we, we we know that we have the information to know that there's no dealing with this in a siloed way that everybody's safety is you know from day one the messaging about COVID is we're all in this together and that is at the community level at the national level at the international level there no one can afford for anybody to not have access to a vaccine to this thing and I think we're going to you know part of that conversation too is not just about the vaccine but also the vaccine passport and how are we going to use that kind of technology or that kind of you know of, a, of an application to be able to say to everybody you know this is this this is the standard like is that is that what we're going to end up doing are we going to end up as a global society going down the road of you have to produce a, vac- a passport like that if you want to if you want to travel if you want if you know you're going to be considered back into into environments that have a whole bunch of people in them like what is that going to look like
0: well, that's interesting about that point. Uh, and I know there's some controversy about the vaccine passport. And, and the Prime Minister says he's not really crazy about going down that road right now. But we may be forced into it, wouldn't we, Doctor? I mean, if, if everybody else is doing it, uh, and for instance, if the United States or the U.K. said, you, you can't come in here unless you've got that passport, uh, the Canadians will have no choice.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a conversation that's happening at the level of the G7. And so w- Canada is part of those conversations. I think it's going to be... Um, Really, really an interesting time as as we start to go down that road because you're right. Like if every, if all the other countries are doing it and people want to travel, then Canadians will will put demands on the Canadian government that we want that right. Like now, not of course not everybody will. There are a lot of risks. There will be you know if we go down the road of a digital passport, there are going to be problems. There are going to be privacy concerns. There's going to be hiccups. There's going to be mistakes. Um, but, you know, Quebec, for example, has already said, yeah, you know, we're, we're going to do the work around around digital passport. And then it's not even just in the global sphere that it would be used, but also, you know, also domestically, potentially, right? If, if provinces are talking about it, then is this going to be something that has to be shown for for interprovincial travel and for other things, too? And so then we have to worry about I think that's where the, some of the prime minister's concerns are coming from.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what are the way, what are some of the ways that this could have unintended consequences and how are we going to manage for that? But I think that's going to, you know, once we see more mass vaccination, then there's going to be I think a switch to that larger conversation around a vaccine passport.
0: I, I think that's one of the major concerns here, just how far would those restrictions go? Uh you you don't have a passport, you don't get on a plane. Uh, anything. I'm not suggesting that's going to yeah, be one you of don't the things to get protocols. a job like, or, or that have? yeah, yeah, that too. You can't come back to work until you get this. Uh yeah which which is always I, we get that and of course there's the privacy issue as well i gotta put a minute or so left i gotta ask you about the long term here because uh, right now we're facing a crisis uh you know, the, the industry has responded incredibly well to actually develop a vaccine within a year. That's remarkable. We're having some problems getting the rollout here, but hopefully we can smooth some of that over. But what about the long term? I mean, Canada, the government did make a commitment to that factory and the retrofit in, in Quebec. As a matter of fact, we heard from them yesterday, and they're into the third trials of of, uh, of their vaccine. So, And there are a couple of other Canadian vaccines that are still in the works as well. Is there going to be a long-term commitment, doctor, do you think, from federal governments and, and subsequent federal governments to keep the this going
1: that's a really really interesting question and i think um you know we're we're waiting for the federal government to bring down a budget we're looking this weekend at the conservative convention we're you know we're kind of looking to our political leaders to say what are your long-term plans what are we going to do here and where is your investment going to be and, you know, if one government puts things in motion, even if that's what they want to do, is another government going to continue that? Because n- none of this is stuff that we're going to talk like none of this that we're talking about is stuff that can be done by one government. This mm-hmm. is a commitment that ha- would have to be taken in a longer term. And so I think it's up to us to to as voters, as citizens, to put some pressure on governments and say, like, what what do we want to do? What is the long term strategy to, to protect Canada?
0: Yeah, it's a discussion we're going to have to have. And uh, I know governments tend to think in four or five-year cycles, in other words, the next election. But uh, mm-hmm. this, is, this is long-term, and here's hoping that somebody has that vision. Uh, always a pleasure, Doctor. Thank you so much for the time. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the first day of spring tomorrow, and uh, we'll talk again soon.
2: You too. Take care.
0: Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, of course, uh, from Dalhousie University. <laughs> You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, vaccine program rolling out here in the province of Ontario, and uh, there are some concerns about that, as we talked about. But the best way to overcome this and make sure that if this happens again, and there's pretty good likelihood that, you know, pandemics are not going to be gone forever. So we're going to have to do some analysis here a lot of questions need to be answered so we are ready and prepared for the next time and one of them of course is how well does the vaccination program work with residents in long-term care homes now we know that they were at the top of the list or near the top of the list when it came to the vaccine and that's good uh we know how terrible uh the last year has been for the residents and staff frankly, frankly long-term care so a study was well worthwhile and something that i was hoping the government was going to do sooner than later and they made the announcement earlier uh, the government of canada through their covid19 immunity task force is supporting a study which Is actually being led by McMaster University researchers. Uh, To talk about this, we're pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Don Bowish, who is a tenured professor of pathology and molecular medicine at McMaster University. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Bill.
0: As I mentioned in the preamble, this is so important. I mean, we have been focused uh, on long-term care. It's been a a very, very traumatic situation for everybody involved, uh, residents, staff, family members, and and everyone else. Uh, And we were so pleased to know that the vaccine program started to roll out. But uh, putting the the, the vaccine in the arm is one thing, but tracking it and seeing just how effective it's going to be is a key part of this, isn't it?
2: Absolutely, so one of the features of being somebody who lives in, old, uh, in long-term care is that they're older, they're on a lot of medications, many of which suppress the immune system, and they're often frail, and the process of being frail actually really changes your immune response. So we know in general, people who are in long-term care don't respond as well to vaccines as younger people. And in this pandemic, this is problematic for two reasons. One, it means that somebody who's been vaccinated might not be fully protected and so might still get infections. And in fact, we've actually seen outbreaks in long-term care facilities and fully vaccinated residents. Um, two, we don't understand the longevity. Older adults sometimes lose their antibodies quicker than younger people, so we need to understand, do they need a booster? And you know, we can even start to make decisions if we start finding that you know not everyone's protected. Maybe instead of two doses they need three doses, or maybe we need to, to change some of our dosing strategy to help keep them safe. So this is going to be really, really important to understand how to keep long-term care residents safe. Um, these vaccines have been much more efficacious than I had dreamed of. Had this been an the pandemic. I think we might have been seeing a very different uh, number of outbreaks after vaccination, but they still need monitoring and care because we need to keep these people safe, and we need to help make good decisions, uh, help their families and the homes make good decisions about keeping them safe.
0: Let's. Yeah, I want to talk about the efficacy of this. Too. By the way, we had a discussion yesterday with the. the people in uh, Quebec that are manufacturing the, the vaccine there and they're heading into third mm-hmm. stages. you know doctor 100% mm-hmm. effective so in the first two studies th- that's remarkable uh th- that not just that we've developed vaccines but the you know they they seem to be as effective as they can but how do you track that in in a in, a, in an aging mm-hmm. population and especially in a, in a plus 80 population uh mm-hmm. like that to understand just how effective and for how long they're going to be What what are the what are the, the things that you look for
2: Well, the quick and easy thing we look for is antibody levels. You know, one of the things that I think is sort of a little bit hard to explain is this concept we have in immunology called immune correlates of protection. So we always, once we have a vaccine out in the public, out in the world, we need to understand what features of the immune response are the ones that protect us and the, the easiest one to measure is the amount of, of antibodies people make. So we're already starting to see hints that some people who don't have fully functioning immune systems don't make enough antibodies. So for example, there was a just a, a study came out of the UK that showed that uh, cancer patients as an example, once they got their first dose, they did not produce a lot of antibodies so would not have been protected, but once they got their second dose they were generally okay. So these, we'll be looking at the levels of antibody and the quality of these antibodies. So one of the things that older adults and frail older adults often, they can make antibodies, but they aren't as sticky. They don't bind the virus in the same way and stop it from causing infection. So we'll be looking at the stickiness of these antibodies. And we'll also be looking at their ability to create what we call memory immune cells. So one of the things about uh, vaccines is they they sort of teach and educate uh, your immune cells to sort of memorize that pathogen. And older adults sometimes don't have very good memory responses. So that means that they can't call back those antibodies or that immune response when they need it in the future. So those are the three major factors we'll be looking at. But we'll also be keeping a very tight eye, a very close eye on any introduction of new variants uh, of the virus. Because unfortunately, we didn't get in there. Early enough to stop COVID entirely, and what we're seeing is some of these these variants that sort of can can thrive when we don't have at the optimal immune response might be getting into the homes. So we'll be looking at that very closely too, because then we might need to change our vaccination strategy uh, to keep older adults uh, safe from these variants.
0: On that point, uh, we, we know about the UK variant and the South African, and uh, they all get names. Uh, are those variants going to continue, doctor, even after the, the vaccination mm-hmm. program? And uh, COVID's not going to go. I mean, it's a coronavirus, and, and you know, they're mm-hmm. there someplace, and they can be latent, mm-hmm. but they're still there. But are they constantly evolving like that?
2: Yeah, you have to imagine from the virus's viewpoint, this is do or die. If they don't find a way to evade, you know, a fully vaccinated population, then it's it's die. And so this is where Darwinian evolution comes into play, just like anything else. So these viruses are going to be adapting so that they can survive and be passed on. And this just speaks to the importance of getting the whole world vaccinated, right? You can imagine we have entire continents that have barely seen a dose of vaccine. The virus is ripping through those. And so there's lots of chances for a new variant to be the case. And unfortunately, it looks like we are going to end up in a world where we're going to have to have like like influenza. We're going to have to have surveillance where we look all over the world and say, OK, which of these variants are coming up? Let's design a vaccine to keep people safe from those. And unless we come in with a really heavy hammer and knock out this this virus everywhere so that there's no virus to mutate and become a variant, we're looking at a long, long haul.
0: That's why I was going to say. I know a lot of medical professionals are, are a little reticent to make the comparison between mm-hmm. influenza and this because a lot of people tried to confuse the two. Uh, but mm-hmm. we get an annual flu shot uh, because I mm-hmm. guess there's variants. I mean, there's different strains of flu all the time. And Is, mm-hmm. is that a possibility or a probability with, with the coronavirus?
2: Yeah, you know, and at the beginning of the pandemic, I was a little bit optimistic that it wouldn't that we wouldn't have these variants because uh, this virus doesn't mutate very quickly. The influenza virus is a fast mutator, so it's always hard to get on top of that. And we were all sort of optimistic because, in general, coronaviruses aren't good mutators, so they, they have a hard time making variants. But uh, like you said, there are some coronaviruses that cause common colds, and and they adapted to evade human immune systems very similar to the way this one is. And so, so now it does look like we're going to have to really keep top on top of these variants and we're already seeing that you know some of the vaccines that worked so well with the original strain work a little bit less well with the variant so they're going to have to be tweaked to deal with those as well but honestly the best thing we could do is go in with a heavy hammer and try to get the viral load as low as possible these variants are a one in hundreds of millions of chance so if there's no virus uh, the chance becomes even lower so we need to be super aggressive with our vaccinations right now
0: you're talking about the, the environment within the, the homes themselves and, 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 mm-hmm. and just I guess by definition as you mentioned doctor an awful lot of the residents in these places are on various medications yeah. uh, does that have any impact at all on the efficacy of the vaccine the fact that, I mean if I go to get a prescription I my pharmacist says hey you're taking this uh, you better be careful of that you better you know they, in other words they, they they're mm-hmm. checking all this stuff uh, we don't have that capability but uh, have you found so far that uh, that there's a concern about uh, some medication that they might be on which could actually impact the efficacy of the vaccine?
2: Yeah this is a really important question because to have a response to a vaccine you have to have a strong immune response so anything that suppresses your immune response is a little bit problematic. Now the good news is that these vaccines are very good for, for example, if you're taking like ibuprofen or over-the-dose aspirin or things like that, those uh, have no effect on vaccine efficacy. So there's no reason to worry about most medications. But unfortunately when you do a clinical trial, you don't include people who have suppressed immune systems in them. So we're really missing data for people who have um, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or autoimmune conditions and have to be on really powerful immunosuppressants. And certainly our long-term care residents often are on those kinds of of drugs. So if there's anyone who's going to be unable to mount a strong immune response to these vaccines, it will likely be those people. And those are the ones we're going to be keeping a really careful eye on. Like I said, we'll look at their ability to mount a response quickly, but also to keep that response because you need a healthy immune response to keep to keep those antibodies in your system for a really long time. And so those are the people I have my eye on as the ones who I, I worry are going to be the most vulnerable to infections.
0: What do you do in a situation like that? I, 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 I know we're kind of drifting a little bit, but I get a lot of questions every time an expert like yourself comes on, and I get all these emails. Well, do, ask her about this. Or, uh, <laughs> if somebody with an autoimmune disease, essentially by definition, that means your body is fighting itself, uh, and, and, and you know, which is why you have you know the antibody suppressants oftentimes in the medication. Uh, does that suppress the vaccine's efficacy? We just addressed that, but uh, I mean. It, do the do you, do you err on the side of caution and say don't get the vaccine or do you just try to track it and and, uh, and see exactly just what you can do I mean the variants on within the vaccine if, if there's an option for them in, in there but mm. it, it just seems as if they're you know they're, they're up against a brick wall here when it comes to the, yeah. just how effective it's going to be
2: so in general, a little bit of an immune response is better than no immune response. So even if somebody who was on one of these drugs were to get the vaccine, the concern would be that they wouldn't be, you know, have a perfect uh, immune response, but they still probably have some immune response. And we, we know that even if you don't have a full, total, strong antibody response as a young, healthy person would, those antibodies you do generate might be enough to keep you out of the hospital or they might be enough to keep you from dying. So in general, unless there's, um, there's It gets a little bit complicated because different classes of vaccines we have different recommendations for. As an example, we don't uh, generally met, uh, recommend um, the AstraZeneca vaccine to people who are uh, immunocompromised, but we believe that the Pfizer and Moderna are really good choices for them. So this is why it's important to monitor because it could be that we need to give them an extra dose to get them right over the edge into that healthy protective range. Or sometimes people in these conditions have sort of um, drug holidays where they go off their drug for various reasons, and that's a great time to come in there with a the vaccination. So it kind of, it's 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 a tough call. People definitely have to talk to the rheumatologist or their, their doctor about what's the right decision and what the current recommendation is for them, but we are definitely hoping to have more studies looking specifically at these people to understand what is the right decision. In general, I would say that the concern is not that you shouldn't get the vaccine, it's just that your response to it might not be uh, 100%.
0: Uh, we should mention, by the way, that McMaster, of course, is, is going to be doing this, but th- with a number of partners uh, Schlegel Villages, yeah. uh, St. Joe's Healthcare System, uh, and Health Sciences uh, North Research Institute, all involved in this. How, how broad based is this going to be, Doctor? I mean, we've spent a lot of time here talking about the vaccine itself mm-hmm. and the effect it's going to have on the body, but are, are you going beyond that to t- to when you're talking about long term care studies, about uh, the, the physical environment and other things involved in there uh, that, uh, that may be factors in, in making people more susceptible?
2: Oh, I love this question so much. So we have incredible partners. The homes that we have, 23 partner homes from Windsor to Milton. And this allows us to do many things. First of all, it allows us to understand what are the features of homes that uh, promote uh, infections or, or protect them from infections. So as an example, my colleague on the grant, Andrew Costa, published a paper early in the uh, epidemic showing that for-profit homes were more likely to have infections than non-profit homes. We also knew that if you have four people in a room, that's, that's a recipe for disaster. And so by feeding this information back to the Ministry of Health and other policymakers, we were able to uh, recommend that fewer people per room can stop infection spreading. So we need to feed back more information on this. Another huge issue in the context of long-term care that's um, been a problem for spreading other infections that haven't got the public's attention was the fact that we rely on part-time workers who travel between homes so much. These people are often underpaid, um, they don't have paid sick days, So, and because they're sort of eking out a wage based on multiple part-time jobs, they'll, they'll go even if they have or they might work even if they have symptoms, and of course with this infection, you can spread it even if you don't have symptoms. So locking down and stopping uh, people going between homes is a really important infectious disease control mechanism. So there's actually two factors to this study. The one is understanding the facility factors that make someone uh, susceptible or vulnerable, but, and then studying their Individual immune factors. And we're hoping that by feeding this information back to our partners, they can help make good decisions. A simple example would be if we were to look at the antibody responses of three residents, and we found that two uh, had we thought would be protected from infection, and one might still be vulnerable you might put them in a room together because the chance of those those two protected people won't be able to spread the infection or, or less likely to spread the infection. But you certainly wouldn't put three vulnerable people in a room together. That would be a recipe for disaster. So by feeding them back this information, we're hoping to be able to stop these infections. And as well, we're also doing saliva-based testing of all the essential visitors, the staff, the residents themselves, so that we're hoping to find the virus quickly, even in people who don't have symptoms and prevent infections that way.
0: I, I know it's controversial when we talk about private versus public institutions and, and mm-hmm. some people feel very skittish especially some people in government seem to, to be pretty skittish about this but it's got to be part of the discussion uh, because the statistics are there and i've talked to a number of people that uh, that are in these facilities and other people that are advocating for these and uh it's 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 got to be factored in here i mean because you're talking about basically your quality of life aren't you uh, mm-hmm. it's it's not just the physical contact it's it's the physical environment uh the hvac system uh, how many people in the room the quality of food. I mean, if, if, if you're not getting what you're supposed to be getting to be a, maintain a, a healthy lifestyle, even at that age, uh, you're going to be more susceptible, aren't you?
2: Especially at that age. You know, it's so important. Like you said, diet, incredibly important for keeping older adults healthy. And unfortunately, sometimes that's the first thing to, to go in some of these facilities. And also the social contact, you know, people... Yeah need to see other people they need to be able to see their family members all these things are so incredibly important and and you know i think the fact that canada has not had a strong regulatory arm for for having some strict rules for long-term care is we are seeing the consequences of that now we need to have frequent inspections we need to have really high standards and and you know i have so much sympathy for all the people in our province who are trying to make decisions about you know a loved one who needs that kind of care because it's a really scary time to to be making those decisions. And so we need to be able to feed back the information so policymakers and government can make these homes absolutely safe. And we need to make them affordable. I mean, let's face it, you know, some of the top quality, high, you know, some of the homes that are so uh, desirable are just out of the budgets of, of most of us. And so that's a huge factor as well.
0: How are you going to ensure that uh, the, the government gets eyes on this? I'd I like to, th- you know, the Part B should be, are they going to act on it? Uh, but but once you've finished the report and you've got your final report all said and done, uh, how do you access government to make sure that this becomes mm-hmm. part of their debate?
2: We did include some government partners in our grants because we wanted to give them this information quickly and we want to give it to them as we have it. We don't want to wait till the very end. We want them to be able to make decisions right now because this pandemic is not over. So we've included them as partners. And uh, my colleagues and I are loud and proud supporters of long term care. And we believe really strongly we'll probably invite ourselves back to your show and give you the report so you can share that with all your your viewers who are making these difficult decisions about their loved ones in long-term care. So we will be working with policymakers. We'll be will be sharing with, them with the public. We have um, groups of uh, retirement communities and older adults who are very keen to hear this. We're working with the Lung Health Foundation, who's going to spread uh, our findings to to all their uh, constituents. And uh, we want people to be able to make. Uh, to have this information, to advocate to their MPPs and their MPs about how we need uh, more controls and we need better long-term care. Because I think collectively as a society, Canada's huge loss of life in long-term care is our deep, enduring shame, and we can't let this happen again.
0: Absolutely. Well, a number of people, including this program, have been advocating for this for quite some time. I look forward to the final report, and, yes, you will be back. I'd love to have you back in the program, Doctor, to talk about uh, the report itself and your findings on this. Thank you so much for the time today, and, listen, good luck with this. We'll stay in touch.
2: Thank you so much. Take care, and thanks for having me.
0: Take care. Dr. Don Bowdish, of course, uh, from McMaster University, uh, among many partners, uh, doing this study about long-term care, so overdue and so important. (laughs) You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to focus a little bit on provincial stuff. Uh, As we mentioned yesterday, Premier Doug Ford was in town in Hamilton yesterday uh, to talk about the vaccine rollout program and and Hamilton's uh, efforts to that. Uh, But obviously, during the the Q&A that followed, uh, there was a lot of talk about vaccines, certainly, uh, but also about MPP Sam Oosterhoff and his decision to speak at an event hosted in part by a group that has compared abortion to the Holocaust. Here's what the Premier said. I told him he has to be very mindful of uh, groups that he's uh, talking to, speaking to. But in saying that, you know, with all my MPPs, I, I can't follow their schedules. I can't dictate on their private time uh, what, they're, what they're doing, what they aren't doing. So what you do in your time is, is your business? Uh, is that what we expected from our elected officials and from the Premier, for that matter? Let's uh, bring Richard Brennan, a former Queen's Park uh, reporter and uh, Parliament Hill journalist, of course, for the Toronto Star for many years. Uh, Badger, uh, your thoughts on this? I mean, uh, he's been very reticent to get anything out of, uh, from Oosterhoff. This is not the first time that Sam Oosterhoff has been in a controversial situation, but the, uh, the Premier seems to just want to let this fade away.
3: Well, he's right. You can't ride her on... Your, uh, your caucus members, you know, 24-7. But when it particularly comes to your, uh, you know, it's pointed out to you, to your attention that, you know, he, he's behaved in such a manner, uh, you know, it, it's time to do something. And I, I'm not so sure that that's happened. You know, I, I understand he's spoken, Mr. Oosterhoff, but I don't know of the repercussions you know that came from that, that little chat they had
0: well if you want to draw a comparison and i know it's not an apples to apples comparison uh but when when mp Derek sloan uh broke from and, and did some rather controversial things erin o'toole booted him out of the caucus plain and simple said you know we, we you know we're a tolerant party but not that tolerant uh you would have expected a, I, I would think some sort of reaction like that very similar to that anyway from the premier
3: well, you would think so, but, uh, I mean, like you said, this isn't Mr. Uh, Mr. Hoff's first you know, uh, scrape, so to speak. It's that, you know, he, he, we had that picture of him when he was, uh, at, you know, when everybody was supposed to be locked down. He was uh, in a gathering in his riding with nobody was wearing masks and that, you and, and that just sent the wrong message. And this, you know, in speaking to this group, this anti-abortion group, and, and you know, that, you know, made that, terrible comparison between uh, you know abortion and, and the holocaust Th- that really should you know uh, alarm should go off in the premier's office and they say hold on a second i mean even even the the premier himself said you never raise the specter of you know of the holocaust and use that as a comparison point in anything and so he, he knew that much about it. Now, why he's really sticking by Usterhav, is remains a mystery to me. But he seems to be it seems to be that he doesn't want to take a hard line on on this young fellow. And, and I'm not quite sure. I mean, it is a riding, and I'm sure that he doesn't want to to lose that riding. But the point is, you have to take. You have to take a stand, and, and I think a lot of people would agree that, you know, his behavior, particularly just recently, really raises a lot of questions.
0: I, I don't think there's much chance of them losing that riding. I mean, Tim Hudak held that riding for no, God, how, no, how many yeah. years before that? No uh, it's, a, it's a conservative riding, absolutely a yeah. conservative riding. We know that. Uh, but the concern here is uh, is, is the efficacy of, of the leadership here, to simply say, hey, you know, these are the, the way I – I mean, he had one guy that didn't agree with his vaccine protocol and, and the way they were handling COVID. He booted him out of the caucus, too. Uh, you know, at some point you've got to be able to say, look, these are the rules, guys. And it, it, this all, I think, comes back – to this antagonistic and sometimes uh, acrimonious relationship that the Conservative Party or the Progressive Conservative Party, in this particular case, uh, has with the religious right. Well,
3: they're they're trying to uh, they're trying to you know dance with two partners, and and that's what's happening here. They're trying to, to you know say, well, we're not going to abandon the religious right, you know, but you know we're not we won't take we won't do anything that really wants to would turn them off but on the other hand they're trying to tell people that you know that they don't they, they aren't beholden to the religious right so there's a, a real conflict here
0: but they say that and then you've got this the charles Mcvetty story from earlier on and 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 now this one and you start thinking well you know they they certainly tried to court them during the campaign when doug ford was elected uh, he seemed to back off a little bit because of there's was, there was a lot of pushback from uh, People in the public to say, you know, is is that what the Conservative Party is all about these days? And and people are asking the same question now. I mean, you know, s- silence is compliance, as they say. If the premier is simply going to say, oh, he's just it's just a young guy being a young guy, I, I don't know. I mean, aren't we supposed to hold elected officials to a higher standard than that?
3: Well, yeah. I are. Mean, like you point out, know, that uh, the other the other MPP uh, spoke out about the way they're handling the the pandemic. And and he's gone. Well, a lot of people agree. Well, you know what? What's he? What his behavior? It's your old idea. You know, you're you're known by the company you keep. If you go to a group and speak, speak to an anti-abortion group, and and you know, and and speak their language and agree with their philosophies and agree with their approach, and mind you, there's a lot of people that do. But the point is that the majority, the majority of the people who voted for the conservatives, don't think that way. And, this, and this, they'll be expecting him to t- do something. What that something is, I'm not quite sure. You know, bust him down, not, you know, to you know, take away his parliamentary, you know, you know advisory role, uh, parliamentary secretary's job. I mean, he's, they could do that. But people, and I think even people within his caucus would expect him to do something.
0: But it seems from his comment yesterday in Hamilton that he's just basically saying, you know, that that's his business, what he does on his time. Uh, I, I only spent nine years in politics at the municipal level, Badger, and you've been doing this a lot longer uh, at Queen's Park, and you've seen all shapes, sizes and, and of, of politicians. Uh, the one thing I came away from my time there is you're on the clock 24 hours a day. It's, you're, it's, being a politician is not a nine-to-five job. You're always going to be under public scrutiny.
3: Oh, a- Absolutely. I mean you got it. I mean people th- think that you know that that they you know politicians just you know go to Queens Park and and that's all they do. Well believe me, that's not what they do. And they they have to when you become a politician, you set yourself up as a a person of of, of respect and and a person that is believes in you know certain things. That and, and, the, with, and holds the same kind of values that they're, that they're, uh, you know that people in their writing do, and and that's I think that's where this all comes down to. He, he may be supported in his writing for that kind of behavior, but I'm not so sure that that's the kind of behavior that people across the province expect.
0: Well, we'll see how the uh, Premier reacts. He's doing another presser, of course, later on today as well. Uh, As always, Badger, thanks so much for this. Uh, Have a great weekend. We'll talk next week. Thanks, Bill. Okay. Richard Brennan, of course, a retired journalist who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill uh, for many, many years. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL in London and 900 CHML in Hamilton. Uh, Well, many of us were surprised and and shocked, frankly, that uh, one of the uh, two Michaels actually was uh, before the courts yesterday. The trial is over, apparently. There was no verdict announced. Uh, But a great deal of concern about that. The other uh, Michael, of course, is going to be tried, we're told, on Monday. For the latest, we're pleased to welcome Abigail Beeman to the program. Abigail, of course, is Ottawa correspondent with Global National in ottawa abigail thanks so much for the time uh what's what has there been an official reaction from the government about what happened yesterday
4: uh well we're waiting to hear from the prime minister who is uh set to speak at 11 30 this morning and uh, obviously expecting him to address this but uh interestingly uh, in terms of official comment the uh canadian uh, charge d'affaires at the uh embassy in china was at the hearing sorry let me be very clear about this tried to attend the hearing. Canada has been pushing for access to these trials uh, for a while. Uh, tried and failed to get inside the hearing, but he did speak to the media overnight uh, outside that trial uh, talking about this frustrating lack of access, talking about how he, uh, how Canada says that uh, not allowing um, the uh, the uh, Canadian diplomats inside the courtroom for the case of a Canadian system, uh, a citizen goes against the Vienna Convention, goes against the Canada-China uh, agreement in terms of uh, bilateral relations and what was interesting was that it wasn't just Canada trying to get inside at uh, this trial uh, this morning or overnight. There were approximately 10 diplomats from uh, that number of of different embassies uh, in China from around the world who were also there in support trying to gain access. Nobody was allowed inside. Uh, Some examples include Germany, Australia, the UK, France, uh, all trying to get inside uh, to show their support for Canada Uh, but it did not happen. Uh, No media was allowed in. No members of the public were allowed in. We saw pictures of uh, what looked like some sort of Chinese police uh, pushing journalists' cameras away, and that was just on the outside of the building. So we really have no idea what happened inside that uh, courtroom. We know it took about two hours. We know, as you say, that there was no verdict, so we are waiting for that. And we know, as you said as well, that uh, the next trial is upcoming on Monday for Michael Kovrig, and Canada is still pushing for access there.
0: Abigail, any idea as to why now? I mean, they've been incarcerated for over two years now, and I think it caught a lot of people off guard that, hey, the trial's this Friday and there's another one on Monday. Uh, It kind of dropped on us like this. Is, Is there anything behind that?
4: Yeah, it, it sort of depends who you ask. Uh, China watchers and experts have a, a number of suspicions, although we'll never know for sure, uh, as to uh, why exactly it happened right now. Jim Nichol himself, the, uh, the the Canadian representative who I mentioned spoke to the media while waiting outside the trial, used the word surprising uh, in terms of the, the trials happening now for exactly the reason you mentioned that these men have been detained for more than two years. Number one, I would say, on all of the experts' lists as to why now, is pointing to the first meeting between. The new American administration and the Chinese. So the uh, U.S. Secretary of State is currently meeting uh, with China in Alaska. Uh, those meetings started yesterday are ongoing today and uh, you know there's a couple of different angles here. Uh, some believe that the Chinese are using this case as some sort of a bargaining chip and that's why they orchestrated the trials to be at the same time. A lot of people watching to, from the Canadian side watching to see if there will be any uh, leaked or public information showing that uh, the U.S. brings up this case in their, their meeting with China. We, we know that the U.S. has been publicly uh, calling for China to release these two Canadians but whether They actually come up in this meeting. The U.S. hasn't publicly committed to to, to doing so at the meeting. So that's something that we'll uh, be watching for. Uh, And of course, the case of Meng Wanzhou uh, uh, moves its way through the the court system uh, in Vancouver as well right now
0: i know the prime minister in the past as, with your reporting his uh, has told us that uh, uh, that he's not going to be bullied into into releasing Hmong. uh I, I don't know exactly how that's going to relate to what's gone on in the last 24 hours or so uh, but it's it's interesting to see and as to what should happen next uh, as you mentioned abigail there was no verdict announced but the conviction rate in, in china in the justice system is 99 percent. so i think there's probably a sense of inevitability here isn't there
4: Most of the experts I spoke with, yes, I believe that that's the most likely outcome would be a conviction. However, there is a hope, and this has happened in the past, uh, that you know there may be a conviction, but then the men may be able to be sent home. I think that's what a lot of people are, are hoping will be the outcome here, because of course uh, the penalties with national security espionage charges range from many years of jail time right up to the death penalty. So obviously, so much is on the line here. Uh, a lot of people are hoping that Sina will choose to uh, to either not issue a conviction or to send these men home. But we're in a position of of waiting and 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 seeing. Uh, I should also note that we had a very a sternly worded statement from the Chinese embassy here in Ottawa today. Uh, so we're waiting to see how the prime minister responds to that too. Uh, but the uh, embassy referred to Canada as a uh, um, arrogant uh, and hypocritical, using an exclamation point, uh, and re- referenced uh, the Foreign Affairs Minister McArneau's comments when he referred to the process as, uh, as involving a lack of transparency. Again, Canadians not allowed inside that courtroom today, so when Garneau referred to that as a lack of transparency, China in this new statement is now calling that a, quote, distortion of facts. Uh, so uh, some some elevated language there in that statement today. We'll see uh, how it unfolds from here, but certainly many things to keep an eye on.
0: Well, absolutely, there are. And, and as you say, probably the key is going to be just how the prime minister responds to this. And I know you'll uh, be questioning about that later on today. We'll be watching for you reporting on Global National tonight. Abigail, thank you so much for this. Thank you. Take care. Abigail Beeman, of course, Ottawa our correspondent with Global National and Global News. Uh, following this uh, very troubling story about the two Michaels uh, that seems to be coming to a head with one trial, we're told, already completed and the other one to uh, take place on Monday. And We could say 99% conviction rate, uh, but we don't know exactly what that would entail, uh, even after if, in fact, there is going to be a conviction. Uh, as soon as we get more information on this, of course, we'll pass it on to you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.